Welcome to the Quest series. My name is Alan Mulhern. The Young series has now ended. However, when we examine the spiritual crisis of our time in a few episodes, we shall return to Jungian psychology as an essential ingredient of the times to come. This podcast is the first in a short series on Gnosticism. We have just explored the relation of Jung and analytical psychology to Gnosticism. Now we examine this ancient religion more closely. The text of a book called The Gnostic Religion by Hans Jonas will be useful and extensive quotation from this book is used in the podcast. Hans Jonas was one of the great commentators on Gnosticism in the 20th century. All the more remarkable since many of his insights were achieved before the translations of the Nag Hammadi finds became available. First, some history. The Greek conquest of the Near East in the 4th century BC created a cultural unity which was to last for almost a thousand years. At that time, the Greek world was in the ascendant, politically, economically, culturally and militarily, while the Near East was in decline and had fallen into a state of paralysis prior to Alexander and was marked by political apathy and cultural stagnation. At the time of Christ, when the Gnostic groups were multiplying, I believe that Christ himself can be better understood as a Gnostic than anything else, and the dominant political and military force in the Near East was the Roman Empire, the Christians and Gnostics were at the bottom of the pile. On the top was the Roman Empire, with its governors of the provinces carrying out the policy of the centre. These were the inheritors of the Hellenistic Greek world. A foreign and brutal occupation force that held power via a complex system of direct control, local kings, once called satraps, and local religions, which they attempted to dominate so as to control the local populations. The religious position of the Roman Empire at the time of Christ was highly polytheistic, with a tendency to deify their empress, for example Julius Caesar and Augustus. Roman religion was therefore highly syncretic, that is, it could assimilate from a wide range of sources. The background was the continual political and religious unrest, which explosively combined in the Near East, not least in Palestine, which included the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The Gnostics were immensely hostile to the whole political and religious apparatus above them and felt and expressed an intense alienation which had its roots in their historical, social and political position. Yet at the same time they were the heirs to the ancient great metaphysical traditions that stretched from the Near East to India. Gnosticism was also highly syncretic, with influences from Buddhism in India, Zoroastrianism in Persia, Judaism in the Near East, and from parts of Neoplatonism as well as Christianity. They were also especially critical of the Judaic religion from which they had emerged. For example, their insistence that Yahweh was an evil and inferior God, and that the material world created by him was also evil. One can contrast their thinking with Stoicism. 
which is at the opposite end of the spectrum and was a philosophical position developed in Greece in the 3rd century BC and then adopted in the upper echelons of the Greek and Roman Empire. The Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius of the 2nd century AD was outstanding in this tradition. For the Stoics, the cosmos is the perfect order of which all its particulars, for example humans, could only approximate. It, the cosmos, possesses beauty and reason and can be observed throughout nature. It manifests as soul and the eternal harmony of the spheres is reflected in human reason. The cosmos, the Stoics argue, is a living spirit and possesses intelligence, wholeness and wisdom. Plato himself said it was a god and in very truth a living creature with soul and reason. The cosmos is the all. The logos is everything. There is nothing outside of it. The cosmic and the divine are one. The logos in Greek translates as reason. However, its meaning can be extended to cause or ratio. St John's Gospel opens with In the beginning was the logos or word. In modern parlance one could say the Logos is a vast intelligence that permeates the universe. The purpose of human consciousness is to contemplate and imitate the Logos. Unlike the Great All, which is ensouled, intelligent and wise, we are imperfect, but through our reason, which distinguishes us from other creatures, and our contemplation of this higher order, we can approach and participate in it as imperfect parts in the perfect whole. One's behaviour and moral life should be ordered, calm and prudent, and therefore imitate the harmony and rationality of the spheres. We both observe and play a conscious part in this process. While such a metaphysical position of a divine order suited the temperament of the property classes in the small city-states of ancient Greece and was also attractive to some of the Roman ruling classes, it was not congenial to the oppressed, alienated masses of the Roman Empire. They did not feel part of a greater and harmonious whole at all. Their economic and social conditions were the exact opposite of this. They were intensely alienated. It is rather like the underclass of our contemporary societies who are growing in the West, being told that the economy and its free markets are a self-equilibrating system that harmoniously and fairly adjusts to all changes and to which this underclass should adapt. Such a philosophy, to be found in the textbooks of neoclassical and neoliberal economics, does not exactly go down well with those suffering from the growing inequality of wealth, which has characterised Western capitalism since the 1970s. Well, it was similar for the oppressed masses in the Near East. The perfect order of the cosmos, its logos and wisdom, did not chime with their existential condition. The Gnostics held a contrary position, that the cosmos was tyrannical and evil, alien to the inner core of human beings. 
The alien life, as it was sometimes called, that is, the god of the Gnostics, is completely outside, above, and against the cosmos. The world of spirit and god is completely contrary to nature, the Gnostics claim. Humans and their world are opposites. We are condemned to be alone in the cosmos. This dualism is at the heart of Gnosticism. The ultimate god has no part in the physical universe and cannot be inferred from nature at all. The world was created by a demiurge, or inferior god, who is a perversion of the divine and is only interested in dominion and power. Actually, like the Judaic god Yahweh. Our true self does not belong in this world of the demiurge but is ultimately part of a totally transcendent unknown God without. The cosmos for the Gnostics is therefore a force of darkness, death, ignorance and evil. Existence is a state of suffering. So, in place of the Stoic veneration for the Logos, the Gnostics had hate, contempt and fear. The cosmos is an order, all right, but a malevolent one and termed by the Gnostics Hymamene, that is, oppressive cosmic fate. Gnosticism was at first a scarcely visible, antagonistic, repressed undercurrent of Roman civilization, but which then exploded in the first century AD under the pressure of Roman rule and the compromise of the Judaic authorities with this foreign oppression. The Gnostics, in their opposition to classical antiquity, proposed an anti-divine universe within which we were the alienated inhabitants. There was a god who was unknown and who was anti-cosmic. The revelation of Gnosis involved the true explanation of things, how this state of alienation came into existence and how, through the light of Gnosis, we can find the path of salvation. Two broad types of Gnosticism are outlined by Jonas, the Iranian and the Syrian. Both are dualistic and have the same consequence, the separation between God and world, mankind and nature, sexuality and spirit. The Iranian version, influenced by Zoroastrian doctrine, has two opposed principles and explains how darkness overcomes and engulfs parts of the light. Our existence is a battle between these forces and mankind is, amazingly, the unforeseen, unintended consequence and is a mixture of light and dark, evil and good. From our captivity by darkness, liberation is sought. By contrast, the Syrian version explains dualism by a progressive emanation or darkening of the original light which leads to darkness in the form of error, desire and guilt. It brings into being the self-alienation that is this world. So the Eastern or Iranian version is dualistic, dark and light, goodness and evil primal battle between the two. The Syrian version 
as an original unity and then emanations from that original oneness gradually degrading until they become matter and create this world. Jonas comments, A key difference of the two systems is whether the fate of the deity comes from outside, in the Iranian version, from the powers of darkness who initiate the drama, or is motivated from within itself, that is the emanation theory, with darkness the product of its passion, not its cause. To give a feeling for this alienation, felt so intensely by the Gnostics, Jonas chose the Mandaeans as illustration, a small tribe in Mesopotamia, quote, in whose writings mythological fantasy abounds, where the Gnostic soul pours forth its anguish, nostalgia and relief in unending streams of powerful symbolism, unquote. Here are a few of its ideas. Most Mandean prayers begin with something like In the name of the first alien life from the worlds of light. The alien life, or sometimes just referred to as life, is the ultimate godhead, which is outside or beyond this world and the cosmos, which is a closed system, terrifying in its vastness to those who are lost within it. The alien life has to pass on its way through this alien cosmos. It is labyrinthine, for the soul loses its way, and whenever it seeks an escape, it only passes from one world or aeon into another. It proclaims, the way we have to go is long and endless. How wide are the boundaries of these worlds of darkness? This time and cosmic space, therefore, is a source of anguish. For this world, the whole cosmic habitation, or the stranger's sojourn, is an enclosed cell. The life or the light has come into this world, where we are trapped in the dark dwelling, the mortal house. Quote, Thou art not from here, and thy root is not of the world. In that world of darkness, I dwelt thousands of myriads of years and nobody knew of me that I was there. Unquote. The antithesis of light and darkness is a constant feature of Gnosticism. This world is a mixture of light and darkness, yet with the preponderance of darkness. There is therefore a mixture, a dispersal for the origin and composition of this world, an uneven one denoting the tragedy of the portions of the light, separated from its main body and immersed in the foreign element. Quote, I am I, the son of the beings of light. Mingled am I, and lamentation I see. Unquote. Yet the Gnostics seek to unify themselves, despite the severity of the split. The Redeemer says, I wandered through worlds and generations. All the worlds shall I journey through, all the mysteries unlock. And the Gnostics encourage, Endeavour to ascend into thyself, gathering in from the body all thy members, which have been dispersed and scattered into multiplicity, from that unity which once abounded in the greatness of its power. Unquote. 
There are different descriptions of how life got into this prison. So far you could transpose this into depth psychotherapy quite easily. The alienated state, the fallen condition, depression and so on. The effort to break out of this condition, its difficulty but the determination one needs. The belief that there's some ultimate source of meaning source of light to which one is linked. The discovery that much of one's world is inadequate or false or conditional, whereas the unconditioned lies somewhere else. And just mentioned the integration process, this gathering in all the members that have been dispersed and scattered into multiplicity, which is the central search of the Gnostics. And for many who undergo the deep process of exploration in depth psychotherapy. There are different descriptions of how life got into this prison. For example, the image of falling. The soul or spirit, a part of the first life or light, fell into the world or into the body. This was a pre-cosmic fall, that is before the creation of the cosmos or this world a fall of part of the divine principle and underlies the genesis of the world and human existence which came into being after this. Quote, the soul once turned towards matter, she became enamoured of it and burning with the desire to experience the pleasures of the body, she no longer wanted to disengage herself from it. Once separated from the divine realm, and engulfed by the alien medium, the movement of the soul is sinking. Quote, How long shall I sink within all the worlds? Unquote. Violence may be added to this description of the fall, as in the metaphors relating to captivity. Quote, Who has carried me into captivity, away from the household of my parents? Who brought me up? Why did you carry me away from my abode, into captivity? and cast me into the stinking body." Unquote. This is paralleled in existential philosophy by Heidegger's phrase, being thrown into life. Jonas comments, the life thus thrown into the world is a divine figure dwelling in the world in a peculiar and tragic role as victim and saviour at the same time. The prototype of man whose destiny is the full force he suffers in his own person. Frequently his name is man, though the figure can also be female. This is a reference to Sophia, who plays rather different roles in Gnostic mythology, depending on which Gnostic sect we look at. In some, she is the Shekinah, the divine essence, the living spirit lying within all matter and life. In others, she has a very high position, and in others, she was just outside the Pleroma and became enamoured with this world, enters into matter and relationship and sexuality, and has to be redeemed by the Saviour. In others, she gives birth to the Demiurge, then separates from him, after which the Demiurge creates this world. The Gnostics did not have a unified worldview on her position and story in the scheme of the cosmos. Yet she usually represents a fallen female principle that needs to be restored. 
In this sense, she balances out the excessive masculinization of the patriarchal religions, restores the Great Mother after she was violently taken out of the cosmic equation by the emerging highly masculine civilizations. For contemporary humanity, she has reappeared with the current crisis of these patriarchal civilizations as a different attitude to nature, the planet, and our very selves. The feeling of having been forgotten in the foreign land by those of the other world recurs. The groping and helplessness, forlornness, dread, homesickness of the life lost in the alien world and the lamentations of the wandering soul. Quote, and I cried for help, seeking the light that I had seen on high, and the watchmen of the gates of the aeons mocked me. Now, O light of lights, I am afflicted in the darkness of the chaos. Deliver me out of the matter of this darkness. And I waited for my spouse, that he might come and fight for me. And he came not. Unquote. Such dramatic and cinematic and poetic techniques that the Gnostics had. A state of unconsciousness exists in the human being. This alien world is a demonic entity which makes elaborate efforts to maintain this state in its victims and to counteract the operation of awakening. So there's a battle. Themes of numbness, sleep, intoxication are common in the literature. For example, they mixed me drink with their cunning and gave me to taste of their meat. I forgot that I was a king's son and served their king. I forgot the pearl for which my parents had sent me. Through the heaviness of their nourishment, I sank into deep slumber. The image of sleep is also a theme throughout the Gnostic literature. The soul slumbers in matter. Adam lies in deep slumber. Quote, Why will ye love the sleep and stumble with them that stumble? They have abandoned themselves to sleep as well as to drunkenness. Unquote. All these quotes from the Mandean literature. The Gnostic message is the counter-move to the design of the world. It is the call intended to break its spell. This is again paralleled in the existential philosophy of Heidegger, who talks of the call of conscience to silence the chatter of the world. Jonas comments, the call is the archetypal Gnostic appeal to mankind, the awakening. Intoxication, induced by the wine of ignorance, which the world everywhere offers to mankind. The ignorance of drunkenness is the soul's ignorance of itself, its origin and its situation in the alien world. It is precisely the awareness of alienness which the intoxication is meant to suppress. Drawn into the whirlpool and oblivious of our true being, this is the purpose of the powers of the world in offering wine and holding their feast. Unquote. However, the drunkenness of ignorance is opposed by the Gnostic paradox of sober drunkenness. 
Thus in the Odes of Solomon we read, From the Lord's spring came speaking water in abundance to my lips. I drank and was drunken with the water of everlasting life. Yet my drunkenness was not that of ignorance, but I turned away from vanity. Unquote. And, quote, He who thus possesses knowledge is like a person who, having been intoxicated, becomes sober, and having come to himself, reaffirms that which is essentially his own. Unquote. And another, which I've quoted before actually, a now more full quotation from the Gospel of Thomas. I am not your master. Because you have drunk, you have become drunk from the bubbling stream which I have measured out. He who will drink from my mouth will become as I am. I myself shall become he. And the things that are hidden will be revealed to him. Unquote. The main weapon of the world, in its great seduction, is sexual love and sensual pleasure in general. It is seen as the eminent form of mankind's ensnarement by the world. The lust for the things of this world, in general, may take on many forms, and by all of them the soul is turned away from its true goal and kept under the spell of its alien abode. Another Gnostic theme of great contemporary relevance, after all, everything we've talked about is of great relevance, isn't it? Addiction, alienation, sexuality, intoxication, and so on. Another theme is the noise of the world, the orgiastic feast intended to draw man into its drunkenness drowns out the call of life. Quote, they shall not hear the words of the alien man, that is the God who has come, or the messenger who has come from the pleroma, from the other world. Come, let us make him hear a great upheaval, that he may forget the heavenly voices. Unquote. Gnostics take no prisoners. Theirs is an intense quest. Christianity and Gnostics are quite close in many mythological themes. The fallen state of mankind, the necessity of a saviour, an ultimate single God, an anti-world viewpoint, and a belief in an extra-mundane reality to which the soul may reach. Many of the Gnostics refused to accept the literalism of the Orthodox Church and thought in terms of symbols. They have a very modern feel and an extraordinary vision to offer humanity. Theirs is the most passionate expression of the alienated condition of mankind and an intense effort to find a way out of our imprisonment. As we have seen, Jung found their spirit as the crucial aid in his search for Gnosis and they became part of a bridge that spanned 2,000 years from Gnosticism through alchemy into analytical psychology. The existentialist movement of the 20th century so powerful in philosophy and psychology, and manifesting in films, literature, art and music, has its radical ancestry in the Gnostic evaluation of the alienated human condition. The 
existential attitude was portrayed as a sense of disorientation, confusion or dread faced with a meaningless or absurd world. Science, since the Enlightenment, has served only to make the macrocosm and microcosm more vast and scarcely intelligible, despite our increased knowledge. The alienation of the modern human in an inhuman universe finds its origin in the Gnostics, who expressed their distress with tremendous passion and intensity. Much later in the 17th century, Pascal, the French philosopher, mathematician, physicist, inventor, wrote of the frightening implications of the vastly expanding universe that was being discovered and mankind's loneliness in this immensity. Quote, Cast into the infinite immensity of spaces of which I am ignorant and which know me not, I am frightened. Unquote. Mankind is overawed by the immense silence, the indifference of the universe to the human position and of its complete loneliness in the universe which can crush it at any moment and in which it has virtually no significance. This was the world of the Enlightenment that was opening up to humanity with the absence of the old Ptolemaic view of the universe, the Catholic Church in the West, and the decline of religions in the face of science. Kierkegaard was perhaps the first existentialist philosopher who argued that each individual, not society or religion, was solely responsible for giving meaning to life and living it authentically. For the Gnostics, truth, the pneumatic principle, was to be found in death or mystic revelation, and the whole apparatus of social control, religions, and the noise, seductions and distractions of the world led to a false self. However, as anti-cosmic, anti-nature as the Gnostics were, they were not nihilists, since they believed in the possibility of realising their pneumatic spirit essence, which was the only thing that gave meaning to their lives. In this sense, they are much closer, as Jung intuited, to analytical psychology, and its belief in the ultimate value of the self, hidden from the ego and largely unknown to the world, yet which underpins the whole life of the psyche. When the ego acts independently of the self, then a reminder is often sent from the self, for example, from the dream world, so that its orientation and attitude are corrected. For examples of these, you may refer to season one of these podcasts, episode 19, called Integration of the Spirit in Psychotherapy. This connection between the self and the ego, the conscious and the unconscious, is one of the most powerful links between analytical psychology and Gnosticism, since the self, capital S, of Jungian psychology is a correlate of the transcendent source of the unknown God in Gnostic mythology, and it is the self, or unknown God, that makes the call. Jonas comments, The symbol of the call is so fundamental to Eastern Gnosticism that it may be termed the religion of the call, sometimes termed the call from without, which may illumine the mortal house. Quote, I sent a call out into the world, 
he called with the heavenly voice into the turmoil of the worlds. Our next podcast will look at the radical eastern branch of Gnosticism, the Manichaeans, who actually in their heyday stretched from the seaboard of the Atlantic to the remoteness of China. Like all Gnostics, they were crushed by the Catholic Church, but their influence lasted on right throughout the Middle Ages. In the next podcast, we will explore this fascinating mythology and also comment on its relevance to the modern world. For example, its connection with Kleinian psychoanalysis, in which the antinomies of light and dark, the good and the bad breast, are strongly emphasised. And also Wagner's Ring Cycle, where the battle between the dark and the light is the central theme. I hope you can join me for this.